The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 2 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC2. And this is Secret Church 2, Episode 9. Look at the gospel. We've seen the gospel of the kingdom. The king has come and the king has conquered. Here's the question I want to ask you based on that. Have you accepted the kingdom? And before you answer that question, I want us to look at what it means to accept the kingdom. Have you accepted the kingdom? And basically a word for have you received the kingdom? What does that mean? Well, I think it can boil down to a couple of different things. First of all, to receive the gift of the kingdom. When you look at the New Testament and teaching of Jesus, the kingdom is mentioned as a gift in different ways. First of all, it is a present and a future gift. The kingdom of God of the New Testament is a present and a future gift. And what I mean by that is it's a gift that's a reality now and in the future. Sometimes when we think of the kingdom of God, we think that's something that's coming. Well, it is something that's coming, but it's also something that's here. And that's what Jesus emphasized over and over and over again. In Luke chapter 17, verse 20, 20, 20 to 25, he says basically to the Pharisees he's teaching, he says, the kingdom of God is among you. It's right in front of you. And then he starts talking about how the Son of Man is going to come. And so it, you kind of see the it's right here and it's coming. You get to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 through 10, and it's the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes... In Matthew 5, verse, verse 3, they start with, uh, with, with uh, blessed are the, those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? Kingdom of heaven. So theirs it, it is. And then you've got the Beatitudes in between that says, blessed are the mourn, for those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So you, you see this, pre, this future thing, they will be, they will have this. And then you get to verse 10, and it says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you see this picture of the kingdom being both here now and in the future. It's present and a future gift. Next, it's a free gift. Luke 12, 32 says, your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He's pleased to give it to us. It's third, a gracious gift. That's where Luke chapter 10, verse 21 talks about how the kingdom has been hidden from the learned and the wise, but it was the father's good pleasure to reveal it to you. It was his pleasure. He takes great pleasure in showing you his reign, his greatness, and his grace, and his mercy. It's a gracious gift. Fourth, it's a valuable gift. Matthew 13, 44 to 46, gives two pictures of the kingdom. It's like treasure in a field that when you find it, you go sell everything you've got because you want the treasure. It's like fine pearls that you sell everything you've got to get this. It's worth everything. We have found something in the kingdom of God worth losing everything for. That is the testimony across this night. There is something worth losing every for. That's what the New Testament kingdom is about. Finally, it's an eternal gift. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 31 is the conversation Jesus had with the rich young ruler. And he talked talks in verse 17 about eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then later he says that is what happens when you enter the kingdom of God. It's an eternal gift. This is not just a gift for now. It is a gift for the future. So all of these things, we receive the kingdom as a gift. God gives it to us. His reign in our life and the way we're seeing in, the, in what Jesus is preaching, he gives it to us. But we also, as, this, as a part of this gift, we enter into the life of the kingdom. We enter into the life of the kingdom, and I want you to think about that in a couple of different ways. First of all, it involves a radical turn to the king. A radical turn to the king. Repent is the 
theme word of the preaching of the kingdom. Why is that? Because it is a turning from all the kingdoms of this world to his kingdom. It is, it is acknowledging the reign of Jesus Christ in our life above everything else. He is the Lord. That's why even after the gospels, we're going to see, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Acts chapter 2, verse 36, first Christian sermon, lifts Jesus up as Lord in Christ. And then Peter says, repent and believe this. See him as Lord. See him as the king. We miss this sometimes with the way we even talk about salvation. We often talk about salvation as I invite Jesus into my heart. Well, and we, and we ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. And yes, that is, a, that is a crucial part about salvation. But that is not all that salvation is. Nowhere in the Gospels and in the New Testament to follow do we see people going to Jesus for forgiveness of sins and then leaving him after that to go on and live life like they want. It's submitting your life to his kingdom. And yes, it's forgiveness of sins. And yes, that should be primary in our understanding of salvation. No question. But we are also subjects of a king. We submit our lives to a king. And so maybe invite Jesus into our heart may not be the best way to describe what it means to follow a king. That's what the message is right here. Dallas Willard, just a quote here. He says, we are guilty of vampire Christianity today that says, I'd like a little of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven. God, help us not to live apart from a kingdom, Christianity. Radical turn to the king. Second, a radical trust in the king. Radical trust in the king. Matthew chapter 18, verse 2 through 4, is talking about Jesus bringing the children to him. And he says, if you want to enter the kingdom, you need to be like these. Now, that can be really skewed, that picture. It's a beautiful picture. But it can be really skewed as immaturity in the faith. And that's a part of this picture. Sometimes we, we see that picture and we think, well, and it is. Jesus is saying that it's the simplicity of a child. But it's... It's not, it's not the simplicity that says, I don't need to know a lot of things, and so I'm in the kingdom, so I can just kind of sit back and coast through and this, this Christianity thing with, without diving deep into the truths. The, the challenge of the New Testament is to get to know God's word, and the more you know it, to grow deeper in a humble trust, just like a child and a father. It's not immaturity in the faith. It's complete and total trust in the Father. It's the face I see when I go home now and this little guy comes crawling up to me and he's got that big open mouth smile on his face and he reaches up his hands and he jumps into my arms. It's radical trust in the Father. And here's the deal. The more we study the New Testament, the more we study the Old Testament, the more we dive into the knowledge of God, the more that kind of simple abandonment and trust should grow. So not immaturity in the faith, but total trust in the Father. The gospel calls us to trust him with everything, everything in our lives. Finally, a radical turn, a radical trust, and third, radical transformation by the king. What happens when, when he, his kingdom becomes a reality in our life, then it begins to pervade every area of our lives, and all the facets of our lives are now under his kingdom, and we see his reign in our life at, at home and our life at work, and our life at play, and our life at school, everything we do. And it's letting the kingdom of God, his reign, his lordship, invade every facet of our lives. 
Not this compartmentalized Christianity that we are so many times guilty of that is relegated to over here in our lives. He is the king of it all, and he transforms it all to be, bring glory to himself. And this is the beauty of the kingdom, is now your life at work, in your workplace, or your life at school, or your life at home, or your life in the neighborhood where you live, is now intended to be lived for the kingdom. And God is intended to be glorified as king in the way you work as a lawyer, or the way you work as a teacher, or the way you work at home. All these things he's king in. So how does that transformation take place? Well, we embrace the king's teachings. We embrace the king's teachings. I've got the Sermon on the Mount listed there, but also John 8, 31 through 36. He's talking about the freedom that comes in the kingdom. How does it come? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth. Know my teachings. We are students of the king. Why do we get together tonight? And this is motivation for the rest of this evening. And any, any time we have to, opportunity to study the word because we're listening to the king. And we're his students. We're his apprentices. We listen to his words. We embrace the king's teachings. Not only embrace his teachings, but we embody the king's character. John 14, 15 through 21. Go look at those verses. It starts off and he says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And that's where it ends too. And in the middle... What he does is he talks about it. He says, I am, the Father is in me, and I am in you, and you are in me. You embody the king's character. The purpose of the king's teachings is to transform our character. That's why we've got to know the word, and that's why the word must be at the center of the church, because it's only through the word that we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ and the character of Christ. This is the avenue through which that happens. And therefore, it's not, it's not stories we need to hear or entertainment we need to get. It's the word we need over and over and over again in our life because it alone has the power to transform our character to be like the king. We embody the king's character. And third, we experience the king's power. I want to show you this one. Luke chapter 10. Go with me to Luke chapter 10. I want you to look with me at verse 9. Luke chapter 10, verse 9. This is Jesus sending out... 72 people on a mission. And I want you to hear what he says to them in Luke chapter 10, verse 9. Well, we'll start in verse 8 just to get the context. When you, when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. And this is Jesus sending other people out. He's, he's done the healing deal, but now he's t- telling them to go out and heal and tell them the kingdom of God is near them. So that's what they do. And they come back. Listen to verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. They're kind of excited. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. He's transferred his authority. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The whole point of the miracles was to do what? To point to the reign of God over us personally in our lives. The king has come. Well, when he transfers his authority, they see all these demons submitting to them. They're seeing the effects of this thing, and they're getting a little excited. And Jesus says, that's great. I have transferred you my authority, but don't forget why. I've transferred you my authority so that you would be in the kingdom and so that others would be drawn into the kingdom. Then you get to John chapter 14, verse 12, and Jesus says these words. He says, all the things you've seen me do on the earth, you're going to do even greater things than these. Now, what do you think about that? 
Jesus, who did all of these things, comes to the end and he says, you'll do it even greater. How can we do it even greater? The church has the authority to go out and proclaim the kingdom and men, women, boys and girls in all nations, the Bible promises, will come into the kingdom. That is great authority. And it is a great privilege to be a part of the kingdom that does even greater than what we see in Jesus' life because he is doing that through every single one of us in this room who trusts in him. We experience the king's power. Finally, we enlist in the king's mission. We enlist in the king's mission. And what I've got listed there is basically the great commission, so to speak, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it leads us to the next facet of the kingdom of God. We have seen the gospel of the kingdom. The king has come. The king has conquered. The question is, have you accepted the kingdom? Is the kingdom a reality in your, your life? Your submission to Christ, is it there? If not, I urge you to see your life as a picture of this kingdom. That's what Jesus is teaching us. Have you accepted? Have you received the kingdom? Are you showing his reign in every facet of your life? We go from Christ to the church when we get to Acts, the mission of the kingdom. I want you to go with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, the very beginning. And I want you to look at how it starts. Acts chapter 1, Jesus is obviously by this time, he's died on the cross, he's risen from the grave. And then Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Listen to this. So when they met together, this is the disciples and Jesus, obviously Judas excluded at this point, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the what? The kingdom to Israel. Is this it? Now that you've risen from the grave, all right, how's it going to happen? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and, the Samaria, and, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you see what's happening here? These guys are still holding out that the kingdom is going to show itself in the way they had thought, maybe, now that he's risen from the grave. Is it in time now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, no. It's not for you to know the times and the dates. But he basically says, we've got work to do. Here's what I am going to do. I'm going to give you my spirit. And you're going to go to all nations. And you're going to make my kingdom known. You're going to be witnesses to the kingdom in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that inaugurates the picture of the church in the kingdom. He says, we've got a job to do, and the spirit's going to enable you to do it. So I want us to think about the king. After this point, he ascends into heaven. And... The guys are stunned. What do we do now? There they are in Jerusalem. So the king is there, even on the, the storyline, the map here. You see the arrow going up, but that doesn't mean the king is out of the picture. The king has come. The king has conquered. Next truth, and it's the first truth under the mission of the kingdom, the king is in control. The king is in control. Now, this is where it gets really good. Here is Jesus. He's ascended into heaven. But I want you to see some things about Jesus even while he's in heaven. First of all, he has a plan. He has a plan. And I want you to think about his plan in a few different ways. First of all, his plan never fails. He has a plan, and that plan never fails. Let me, let me show you this. You've got some scriptures listed there. In Luke, all those different scriptures, the word that's used, it's the same word in the, in the Greek, but it's a couple different words that you'll see in the English. 
it talks about how this must happen or that must happen or it's necessary for this to happen or it's necessary for that to happen. Why is it necessary? Why must it happen? Well, because this is not just random haphazard things going on here. You get to Acts chapter 1 and the theme is picked up in different verses. Look at verse 16, Acts chapter 1. We're right here. Those days Peter stood up among the believers, about 120, and he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago. Then you get down to verse 21. Therefore, it is necessary for one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Get to chapter 2, verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose. His foreknowledge. It was purpose that this should happen. You get to chapter 3, verse 12. When Peter said that, saw this, he said to the men of Israel, Why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us? If it's by our own power, godless, we had made this man walk. We didn't do this. It had to happen. God is doing this. Look at chapter 4, verse 21. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. What we're seeing over and over and over again in the book of Acts is that things are happening for a reason. They're happening for a reason. The plan that God has is never going to fail. Now, I want us to think about it in some specific ways. He planned, Jesus planned to go to the cross. Jesus planned to go to the cross. We can't get the idea when we come to the New Testament that the cross was an accident. Oh, no, I sent my son, and this is what happened. No, this was the plan from the very beginning. You look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23, which we just read. It's really interesting. You know, it's a, it's a hot topic today in our church culture, predestination and election. Look at Acts 2, 23. Look at what it says. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. God purposed to send Jesus to the cross. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing to the cross. So God purposed it, and at the same time, they chose to put him on the cross. So God's sovereignty and man's responsibility for what happened somehow go together. And we're going to try in our day to do everything we can to try to debate that back and forth. But the truth is it's both there in Scripture. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are right there together. You see it again in chapter 4 when they're praying. After they're experiencing persecution, verse 27 says, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They conspired. Then look at verse 28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God's sovereignty, his plan, man's responsibility, they go together. Ask me how, I don't know. But they go together. They're, they're, they're not... They're not against each other. Somehow they fit together in Scripture. God has a plan. Jesus planned to go to the cross. All those verses that you see in Luke are talk about how Jesus set himself toward Jerusalem to go to the cross. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 is a major shift in the book of Luke. And it's when it says Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. John chapter 10, verse 18 says, No one takes my life from me. I give it up myself. He planned to go to the cross. It was part of the whole design of Christ. Not only that, but he planned to rise from the grave. I'm glad that was a part of his plan. Acts chapter 2, verse 24, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then when you get to chapter 13, it says the same thing. He planned to go to the cross. He planned to rise from the grave. Next, he planned to send his spirit. He planned to send his spirit. When you get to Acts chapter 2, 
and the Holy Spirit comes down in verses 1 through 4 especially, you see the plan of God completely coming together here. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. You go back and you might make it, well, I've got it written there. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 9 through 14, talks about the, the Spirit of God in Ezekiel coming to be upon his people. And that's the picture we're seeing culminating here in Acts chapter 2. And then it says they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And you go back to Exodus chapter 19 and chapter 31, and you see similar picture of the Word of God in Exodus chapter 19 that you see right here. And on that day, 3,000 people are struck down in Exodus chapter 31. It just so happens that on the day the Spirit comes, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. It's a complete reversal of that picture in chapter 31. And then you see what happens. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. We've got a picture way back in Genesis chapter 11 of God's judgment that causes scattered, being people to be scattered to the nations and confused and divided from each other. When God's Spirit comes down, what you see is unity among the nations because there is one gospel being preached in all these different languages. All of that in the Old Testament set this picture up in Acts chapter 2. God planned to send his spirit in this way at this time. It was all part of his divine plan. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.